Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. All right, good morning. Hope you all have had a good week. Um, we are officially a week away from Christmas, so do with that what you will. Uh, you know, some people have been asking me this week, somebody just asked me before the service, are you ready for Christmas yet? And uh, my typical response is usually no, because if somebody's asking me if I'm ready for Christmas, a lot of times, they're, they're, what are they asking? If, if I've got my holiday shopping done. And typically by this point, the answer is no for me. I have not got all my holiday shopping done. So... Uh, why is that our gauge, though? Why is that our gauge for our readiness for Christmas? It, it, why does it depend on our, on our shopping and getting our, our shopping done? Um, I think part of it is, you know, just the anticipation. After Halloween, the anticipation is on the rise for the start of the shopping season. I mean, Black Friday, for example, okay? Black Friday, who in here, I'm curious, would admit to going out on a Black Friday before very few are admitting it. I think there's probably a lot more. Uh, I, I have to make a confession. I have actually, I, I used to go out on Black Friday every year. Uh, but before you judge me too harshly, uh, I didn't actually go to buy anything. Okay? I, me and my brother, we would, on, on Thanksgiving, we would look for the most cutthroat deal, the one that we thought everybody would be clawing for. And we would stay up on Thanksgiving night, we'd stay up the whole night, go out and wait in a freezing cold line with all the crazy people, not to buy anything, but just to watch. We were sick. We loved seeing the, the fights and the cussing and the yelling and the clawing. We were sick. But we did it every year for a number of years. Stores will say that Black Friday is called Black Friday because it's the day that they start making a profit. Like, that's when their ledger goes from the red to the black. Everybody knows that Black Friday is called Black Friday because it's the darkest day of the human soul. <laughs> Bar none. It is the darkest day of the human soul. But I say that to say this. The secular world has its own set of liturgies, if you will. These practices that as we engage in them over a period of time, they start to shape our hearts. They start to form our desires and, and move us toward a certain set of desires. And so today, I want to I encourage us to embrace a different kind of anticipation leading up to Christmas. Um, we're in the middle of the Advent season right now. That's why these candles are out here. We're in the middle of this Advent season. And I had a lot of fun studying Advent this week, trying to figure out exactly. Um, I had never, never celebrated Advent, so just learning some of the traditions and what they meant was a lot of fun for me this week. Um, it, it typically starts four Sundays before Christmas. Uh, and it's all about this, this time of fasting and longing and embracing these, these practices or, um, or liturgies or traditions or disciplines or whatever you want to call them that form in us a longing for the salvation of God. And when we, um, it causes us to reflect reflect on why Christ actually came, which is, which is difficult for us to do because it causes us, it forces us to um, 
to confront our own sin and brokenness. Uh, but if we do it, uh, we start to embrace the real, the real joy of Emmanuel, God with us. So how do, we, how do we recover the true meaning of Advent and Christmas itself? Uh, that's the question that, that I want in your minds today as we're going through this. It's the, cre- the question we're going to be wrestling with. And first we have to look at what preoccupies me, what excites me about the Christmas season. And for me, I get excited if, if, if somebody says Christmas is around the corner. I start thinking of the presents and putting up the decorations. Uh, I start thinking of the Christmas parties and the family get-togethers. And just going out and getting some hot cocoa with my family and looking at Christmas lights. Uh, watching Will Ferrell dress up as Buddy the Elf for the hundredth time. Those are things I get excited about when Christmas is coming around. And I don't want to throw any of those things out the window. That's not the, that's not the point today. But the point is that I want us to embrace some practices that can start to create this longing for us, this longing for Christ. If we get our focus right, then everything else about the holiday just becomes that much sweeter. So in order to do that, we're going to look in Luke because um, nobody builds this anticipation better than Luke. Uh, he, he pulls from these Old Testament, um, these Old Testament prophecies and this old expectation of this coming Messiah. And he has this slow build, this character arc all throughout it, uh, all throughout his gospel. You remember when we were, we were going through Mark and everything was immediate. Everything happened one after the other. Everything was immediate. For Luke, it's a slow burn. It's just this process and you're waiting and you're expecting and to get into that mindset, you kind of have to understand a little bit about the, the, the Jewish mindset of the time. Because these, these, these people have, have been oppressed. They've got such a long history of oppression. And at this time, they were occupied by Roman rule. Uh, they, they had this, this Roman oppression that they were experiencing. And, and most of the, the prophecies from the Old Testament actually... Um, had this very militant language, like this Messiah was going to come and he was going to wipe the floor with these people and set everything right again. So they're expecting sort of a militant Messiah, this military leader to come and, and, and deliver them. Uh, listen to the language. I just want to show you one, one of the many Old Testament passages that Luke plays on a lot. In Isaiah 9, it says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. You hear the militant language here. The, the very, um, just a very militant language. And then it says, says this, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
Luke plays on this imagery a lot, especially the imagery of light. This child is going to be born to us, and he is going to be a light shining in the darkness, and he is going to usher in this this era of peace. So let me ask you this. How, How many of you are longing for that peace today? You may not... We, we don't really know what it means to be oppressed the way that, that they did. We may not know that kind of oppression, but everybody knows what it means to hurt, what it means to suffer, to long and, and hope for something good and real and not see it fulfilled. Everybody that's alive knows those kinds of longings. We know things are not the way that they ought to be. So Luke starts his story in the middle of this political turmoil um, with this hopeful expectation of the Messiah. But he doesn't even start with the birth of Christ. The one that they've been waiting for, he doesn't even start with Christ. He actually starts, he puts together this dual birth narrative between John the Baptist and Jesus. And he starts with John. He starts with the one who's, who's supposed to prepare the way. So Gabriel, the angel, comes and he, and he announces the birth of John. The one that the Old Testament had prophesied, this one is going to come and he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. He's going to be the one that's going to make straight the paths and make people ready for salvation. And when, when Gabriel announces that, then he goes to Mary and he announces the birth of Jesus. And when he's, when he's announcing the birth of Jesus, this is, this is probably the most radical prophecy in your Bible. Not, not only is God coming to earth, he's talking to this young woman. And he's saying, you are about to give birth to God. God is coming in the flesh and he's going to use you as the vehicle. This is probably the most radical thing in your Bible. Not only is he coming, but he's using you. So look at what he, what he says here, this political language again. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. You hear the political language carried over from the Old Testament. He's going to have the throne of his father David. And Mary says to the angel, How can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This imagery is phenomenal. The, the, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child should be called the Son of God. This, is, this would have recalled in their minds this Old Testament imagery of when the tabernacle was finished and God comes and he, it says that he, uh, he comes in a cloud and overshadows the tabernacle and actually literally infuses it with his presence and his glory. So the God who is outside of time and space, the tabernacle, when it was completed, is the place that he chose to materialize and localize his presence in time and space. 
And now this overshadowing that happened in, in the Old Testament, that happened in a place, now it's going to happen in a person, the person of Jesus Christ, the one you're going to give birth to. So the text says that Mary was, was perplexed at the angel's greeting. It, it kind of constantly leads on that she's, she, um, she's, it either says that she's perplexed or that she was pondering or that she was treasuring these things in her heart. Like she doesn't quite grasp the full implications of, of what all is happening around her right now. But look at her, her response. She says, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And one commentator says that this is perhaps the best definition in the Bible of, of faith. The desire for God's word to become reality in our lives. That's what Mary was looking for. I don't quite understand all of what's going on, but I want your word to become reality. May it be done to me according to your word. So what does she do? She goes and she finds Elizabeth the one who's, who's going to give birth to John. And when she, when she finds her, Luke says that John leaps in, in utero. He's, he's in the womb and he leaps with joy whenever he hears Mary's greeting. And Luke is building this, this joyful anticipation for what's coming. So when John is born... Zacharias uh, prophesies his dad. His, his, his dad is, is a uh, part, of this, this, uh, part of the temple. And he's, he's prophesying here, saying that, that uh, he, for one, he's thanking God for the salvation that's finally coming. And he's saying that, John, you're going to be the one that's been prophesied to prepare the way for the Messiah. But then he says this. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. He's calling the Messiah the sunrise from on high to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He's referring back again to Isaiah 9 saying, he's, he's literally calling the Messiah the sunrise on high who's going to visit us. He's using this imagery of light, this light that ushers in this era of peace. But then Luke does something interesting again because Jesus is not the only one claiming this. He's not the only one claiming this light and peace at the time. Luke mentions Caesar Augustus. He mentions a census that he's taking which is the occasion, it's the whole reason that Mary and Joseph are, are making their way to Bethlehem, was, was to be registered for this census. And uh, the, the, the mention of Caesar Augustus is important because inscriptions have actually been found for Caesar Augustus that, that identify him uh, as God, the Son of God, Savior, he considered himself to be the savior of the common folk and the savior of the world. There's an official litany of accomplishments for Caesar that actually says, says he is the savior who inaugurated a new and propitious age of peace. 
fulfilling the longings of humanity. This is, this is who was in power whenever, whenever Jesus was born. This guy was claiming to be this light and peace. Maybe not in the same way, maybe not necessarily according to the prophecy, but he's claiming to be light and peace. But Luke mentions him because he's making a stark contrast between the power systems of the world that, that claim to have this, this hope, that claim to have the peace that you're looking for, the, the, the fulfillment of your desires. He's making a contrast between that and this small child who comes into the world in the middle of all the crazy, in the middle of all the busyness, in the middle of all the, the hectic uh, hustle and bustle of the census and everything else. Jesus is born, God in the flesh, literally in a feeding trough. That cute little rocking crib that we see in the nativity scenes. It's not an ancient crib, it's actually a feeding trough. And instead of a royal announcement to some important people, instead of an invasion into the heart of the political world, one angel goes and talks to these shepherds and proclaims that God has come. And this shepherd, shepherds, I found out this week, would not have even been qualified to, to serve as a witness in legal cases in Judaism because of their low status. If you're making up this story, if you're making up this story, you're not using the, you're not going to make the first witnesses of Jesus some lowly shepherds. And again, at the end of the story, if you know how Luke, he uses women as the first witnesses to the resurrection. In a misogynistic culture like this, you would not have used women as the first witnesses to the, to the resurrection at the tomb. Even if you are, even if it's a true story and you are embellishing a little bit, you're not going to emphasize the shepherds and the women in this culture unless it actually happened. Yet the glory of God shines around these shepherds, and the angel says this, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Then an army of angels appears, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace. Light and peace. They're saying it's come. And these shepherds run and they, and they tell, they find Jesus and they tell Mary and Joseph everything that's happened. Why? Because if you are in their shoes, you are saying, we have been waiting for this for so long. This is the fulfillment of our hope. And then the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen just as had been told to them. God is, is bringing together these broken and hurting people. That's what he's doing in the, in the beginning of the story. He's bringing together these broken and hurting people who are longing for the salvation of God. Um, one commentator says, The new community of the manger 
results in the coming together of disparate groups who hear and speak, marvel and ponder, glorify and praise, and then return to useful work in the world. This is who we are. This, we are the church, the ecclesia, the ones called out from the world in order, to be, in order to become something through our worship. Our worship actually forms us. It creates these desires in us. So we're here called out from the world to become something together in order to be sent back out into the world and let them in on the secret. Salvation has come. We're carrying this message of hope. So Luke de- keeps describing these people who were longing and waiting. Uh, two more characters that he, that he introduces. Uh, so Jesus is uh, having to be taken to, uh, you know, Mary and Joseph are taking Jesus to the temple when he's eight days old to fulfill some Jewish customs. And as they're going to the temple, there's this man that's introduced named Simeon. And Simeon is not a, uh, he's not a temple official. He's not a political figure. He's only described as a righteous and devout man who is longing for the consolation of Israel. He's longing for the salvation of God. He's looking for it. And the Holy Spirit has revealed to this guy that he will not die until he has seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. So when Mary and Joseph are going into the temple and, and Simeon is going, Luke says that, that he's filled with the Spirit and he goes into the temple and he sees Jesus and he knows immediately who this is. And he goes up and he holds the baby in his hands. And he says, I, I can die now because my eyes have seen your salvation. I've seen your salvation. He calls him a light to the Gentiles. Again, referring back to Isaiah 9. And in this same episode, we're introduced to this this old woman, Anna. She's a prophetess. She's been fasting and and praying, and she's continually engaged in these practices. And we don't don't find out what she says exactly, but she comes up, and she's glorifying God, and, and, and it says that she goes out, and she is telling everyone who is looking for the consolation of Israel. Luke is describing a people who are longing and waiting and looking. And they're able to see it because they're expecting it. Their eyes are open because their their lives are, they've engaged in the kind of life that orients them towards the things of God. That's what Luke is describing here. So do you see what Luke is, is trying to do? He's, he's trying to create this, this longing and this anticipation in us for this, for this coming Christ, but uh, we know something that they didn't. We know that Christ didn't come at this first advent. He didn't come as the military leader. We know that he didn't come and and set everything right. We know that things are still not the way they ought to be. And Jesus starts dropping hints through Luke's gospel. He starts dropping hints that the hope that you have waited for 
for so long, it's not quite here yet. He says in Luke 17, the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. It's here. It's come. But then he says right after that, you will long for the days. He says the days are coming when you will long for one of the days of the Son of Man and not see it. Because it's still future. We know that longing. Christmas is a time for celebration and joy that that Christ has come. But if Christmas is for joy, Advent is for longing. Advent is for anticipating his arrival. Uh, You may be be in here and, and, and thinking that Jesus sounds a lot like Caesar Augustus, that he's full of hot air because you're saying what peace I hurt and I long and I suffer and I don't see any of the redemption you're talking about for some of you going home to see family is the hardest time of the year one of the worst things you have to suffer through some of it may be uh Maybe you have a a family member who is caught in destructive patterns. Uh, Maybe you have some past scars uh, with divorce or with with, um, abuse. Maybe there's a new sickness you're having to deal with. Or maybe, maybe you're just longing for the salvation of a family member. I know what that means to long for the salvation of a family member, to to ask and to beg and to pray and to plead, God, pursue them, grab a hold of them. I know that hurt. I'm in it now. And some of you, for some of you, this will be the first Christmas without a loved one. And I hurt for you. But I want you to know that it's okay to mourn. I want you to know that you don't have to be reconciled with death. Because it's not normal, it's not natural, it's what God came to redeem. read somebody this week that said sometimes the only thing left to do is simply hold on to each other, pray and dance in the darkness, waiting for the light. We're trusting in the God who suffered with us, who suffered for us. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers 
the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. You are not alone. Whatever you're going through, you are not alone. We are groaning together. We are groaning together. And it's not just a future hope. That's what eternal living now means to us. It's not just a future hope. It's something that starts now. We start preparing for it now. Anticipation and preparation go hand in hand. You do not separate the two. Anticipation and preparation go completely together. You realize by now we're not talking about the the anticipation of a sold-out show, of, of, of your latest draft pick that's going to take your team all the way. We're not even talking about the anticipation of uh, a political hopeful who you think is going to turn the world around. The kind of anticipation we're talking about is much closer to the kind of anticipation you, you see during childbirth. You read the books, you take the classes, you prepare the nursery, not out of obligation. You don't do those things out of obligation. You do it because you're anticipating life. That's what we're doing. We are anticipating life. And look, those practices turn back around and fuel the anticipation. It's circular. That's why the preparation and the anticipation go together. Those practices fuel the anticipation, which makes you want to prepare more. It makes you want to engage more in the practices that are fueling the anticipation. They go hand in hand and they build on each other. So what practices can you put in place to anticipate the Christ's coming? What traditions are most central to your Christmas season? I'll tell you, I love, I love Santa. I love presents. I love Christmas trees. I love looking at the Santa tracker on Christmas Eve to find out exactly where he is. And yes, if you're wondering, I did that before I had a kid. I love that stuff. I love the anticipation. But hear me when I say I don't want my kid to anticipate Santa and presents and lights and forget about the one who is the true light. How can I instill a longing for Christ in my kids? What traditions and practices can I put in place to make my kids anticipate the coming of Christ? The salvation of God. Maybe you don't have kids. How, ask yourself, how can, I model, how can I model this anticipation for myself and for my spouse? How can I show that everything else is secondary? Women, this, uh, this, uh, this applies to you too, but men, I want to talk to you and just say that this will not happen in your house unless you are modeling it. You lead in this. You lead in this longing and anticipation. 
Let me tell you, I get caught up in the toys and the hobbies and, and, and trying to, to get work done and do well at work. I get caught up in those things just like anybody else. But we're already engaged in the practices that, that move us toward these desires. And you're not going to redirect them until you start engaging in the practices that fuel desire for Christ. I also want to tell you, don't take any of these ideas and make a formula out of them because, um, and you know, like tell somebody else like, hey, you need to do this too because it works great for us, right? If, if, if you decide this year to, to donate all of your presents as a family to a needy family, that is the coolest thing. That will go a long way in doing what we're talking about. But if you do that, don't tell anybody else they need to do it too. Please don't do that. That's, that gets into legalism. And listen, legalism anticipates Christ's return in a very different way. Because legalism anticipates Christ's return with an anxiousness. Have I measured up? Have I met this standard? I know he's coming. Have I, have I checked this off? Have I, have I measured up? Legalism anticipates with anxiousness, but true longing, the kind that we're talking about, anticipates Christ's return with a settled peace and joy in whatever circumstance we're in. And if you need specific direction on what to do, come ask. I mean, we've got, we've got an entire discipleship process in place to help move you down this road. Come, come find me after the service. Come find Dave. Go to the connect area. Go find a leader. Don't leave without talking to somebody about what your next step could be down this road of anticipating Christ. Um, the band's going to come out uh, and close us in a song. I noticed I always love closing with a song, and I think it's because it's one of those practices that does exactly what we're talking about. It, it fuels that that desire. It, it starts to stir the heart and fuel that desire. So as the band's coming out, we're going we're gonna to actually do a little practice ourselves. Um, again, I just learned what all this Advent stuff was all about. I had no idea. There's some cool stuff here. There's a lot of symbolism in it. Um, even the, the purple, you know, down, down to the color, the purple represents this fasting and this longing, this anticipation. And then the, the rose-colored one represents joy. Uh, but traditionally, these, these are lit each one Sunday leading up to Christmas. And the first candle is called the, uh, the prophet candle, and it represents hope, this, this long-awaited hope that we're, that we're looking forward to. The second candle is called the Bethlehem candle, and it represents, uh, it represents faith, the faith of, of Mary and Joseph, and especially Mary's response to say, may it be done to me according to your word. The third candle is a different color because it's, it's the shepherd's candle. It's, it represents joy, the joy that it's right around the corner, it's coming, the long-awaited, the long-awaited Savior, the salvation I've been waiting for, the peace I've been waiting for is coming. The fourth candle 
It's called the angel candle, and it represents peace, the peace that the angels proclaimed to the people, the peace that we're waiting for, that we're longing for. And then the, the final candle is the, the Christmas candle. And I'm not going to light it for two reasons. One, because it's, it's not Christmas, so we don't light it yet. Uh, but two, because I want you to long for it to be lit. I want you to long for that, for that light that brings peace. And remember, it's, it's, not just a, it's not just a future hope, a future peace. It's a peace that starts in us now. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.